Welcome to Crunching Tackles, where we break down the hardest hitting social issues in sports. On today's show, Serena Williams announced that she will be retiring after the 2022 U.S. Open. We reflect on her career and legacy and what she leaves behind. My name is Chad Wiley, and with me, as always, is John Nekrasov. And John, how are you doing this week? Chad, I'm doing pretty solid. I'm I'm waking up with my uh, my standard coffee. I my the only breakfast currently in my stomach is a pair of uh, fruit bars, and um, I don't know. I'm trying to, as always, I'm trying to remember like what happened in my week, and as it is with conversations in normal life, when people ask how my week was, I say my week was good, and then I stare at them blank face for roughly 30 seconds while I struggled to remember whether I actually did anything this week. I'm still not entirely sure, but uh, but I think it was good. Yeah, I do, I do the exact same thing, to be honest. I was like, did I, did I do anything like unusual this week? And most times it's like, no, it was just a week. But sometimes Which, it's funny because like I, I did things, I just don't remember any of them. Right, yeah. For me, like when I say like life is normal, that means it's like good because I, like, mm-hmm. I like my normal. Some people like need need something like new to like have a good week. I'm just like if I just have a normal no drama, just chill week. That's that's about all I ask for in life. So yeah, yeah. You, know, you sit down, you uh, you watch your TV, you, you do your work, you yeah. eat your food, you drink right. your coffee, like I pet my dogs. It's life. Mm-hmm. You watch your sports. That's a, the big thing, honestly. That's been like different for me has been that sports, like NFL preseasons here, the Premier Leagues here. Um, and I have been enjoying those things. Not, I haven't really partaken in NFL preseason aside from the Titans game yesterday. Uh, since Liberty's very own Malik Willis did play um, for at least a little bit. But, uh, but it's been nice to have sports back. I think I've been feeling the, the sports bug in a way that I have not felt it in, in a little bit. Yeah, summer's definitely, we've talked about this, but summer's kind of like the time for the the sports that don't always get the big headlines, you get like mm-hmm. all the golf stuff, all the tennis stuff, and then mostly just baseball is like the regular. And then, you know, come fall, that's when you're getting all the European soccer and then, you know, the heavy hitters in America, the the, the baseball, I'm sorry, the, the football and the basketballs. So, mm-hmm. and the only part of baseball that actually matters, which is October. Right. So, yeah, I, I did enjoy the, um, the Field of Dreams game last night, the second edition of that game in in a cornfield in Iowa made after the movie. Um, it was the Cubs versus the Reds this time. Uh, it wasn't as good as the first one when no. there was like eight home runs and the White Sox walked it off. But it was, it was you know, it's always fun to watch a game in that atmosphere. So that was cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I obviously enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed Arsenal kicking the season off with the win, which is not uh, particularly common for us, unfortunately, over the past few years. But, but we did. This year, and we also currently have a TV show running on Amazon, which I've watched like two episodes of. I'm not sure how much is out right now, but but I'm I'm slowly gonna 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 chug my way through. I uh, I always have like a love hate relationship with reality TV. It like it really it takes a specific brand for me to really get into it. And like these Amazon sports shows, I mentioned this a little bit earlier in the week, but I like there's something about them that doesn't appeal to me as much as some sports documentaries. I don't know. Yeah, do you watch Hard Knocks? Mm-mm. The NFL version of, I guess, All or Nothing. Oh, right, right, right. This year it's the Lions, and the first episode came out. I haven't. I don't know if I will watch it. I don't normally watch it, mm-hmm. but um, it's on HBO Max, and the Lions are the subject this year. I, I apparently the first episode was pretty interesting. I I usually don't watch sports reality TV shows just because I don't know they don't really. For, for someone who likes sports, the behind-the-scenes stuff can be interesting, but it can also just be a lot of just stirred-up drama for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting to kind of see, like, especially with Hard Knocks, where, like, you're seeing players get cut. That's always the really dramatic part of it. It's, like, during training camp. And so every week there's a round of cuts, and those are always, like, really tough. But, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, the only, only clip I saw from Hard Knocks was – some Lions player singing Billy Jean, I think, in front of the. Uh, that was their draft pick. The, that was yeah. uh, Hutchinson, the the new guy, the number two mm-hmm. overall pick. That was funny. Well, I guess he's 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 making his mark. John, I do want to talk about a couple content things. One mm-hmm. is a recommendation for those who listen to this podcast, in part for our Star Wars content, and that recommendation is the six part 
documentary called Light and Magic on Disney Plus. That is a documentary about the history and workings of Industrial Light and Magic, which is George Lucas's visual effects team. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just finished episode two, uh, and they have just finished the visual effects for the first Star Wars movie. And it is a really, really interesting documentary. It has interviews with, among others, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Ron Howard, along with all the people involved in the Industrial Light and Magic team. Um, if you like Star Wars, I think this is the best behind-the-scenes look at Star Wars that I've seen yet. Mm. Um, it, it is really, really good. It's fascinating. Really just to see how groundbreaking that technology was at the time that it was being made. Um, and I highly recommend that documentary. Very cool. I'm, that's, I'm, I'm actually intrigued then. Yeah. I didn't realize it was like a, actually a Star Wars documentary, really. Well, the first two have been. Industrial Light and Magic have done other stuff. They did, they're the ones who've done the Marvel stuff. They've done other things. Right. But they did like Jurassic Park as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at, through two episodes, it has been almost entirely about the history of, you know, the original Star Wars, as well as some of George Lucas's life story, which is fascinating because I, I guess him and Francis Ford Coppola and Steven Spielberg all kind of grew up together making movies together. They were kind really? of like, yeah, they were like a team. And, and George Lucas was actually, one of his first features was making a documentary about Francis Ford Coppola making a movie. And then Coppola went on to do The Godfather, mm-hmm. and Lucas went on to do Star Wars, and then Spielberg, after them, kind of came in and did his own thing. So that was, yeah, that was kind of fun to see that trio. That's really funny. When you, that's an interesting combination of people. It is, To all yeah. be together, especially given the way their careers panned out. It is really funny. George Lucas. Right, right, yeah, fair enough. (laughs) George Lucas is the one who made Attack of the Clones. (laughs) That's true, that's true. John, my second thing is this is like a little bit of a sports story. We weren't podcasting in the summer of 2018. We were not. When the World Cup was going on, but also this could, you know, crisis avoided could have been tragic story that really was the story of the world for about three weeks, which was the the youth Thailand soccer team that went caving and were trapped Mm -hmm. in the flooded cave. Um, And there's been a documentary made about it by the same people who did Free Solo. That uh, was really good. But now there is a dramatized version of this story directed by Ron Howard, starring Viggo Mortensen, Colin Farrell, and Joel Egerton. It's called 13 Lives. It was a direct-to-stream on Amazon Prime. It's you know, it's not the most revolutionary filmmaking in the world, but it's a really good story. It's really good performances by those three people I mentioned, as well as the native Thailand cast of men and boys involved in this film. Um, half of, about half of the movie is in uh, subtitles, English subtitles, mm-hmm. in you know, the Thailand language. I don't know what is it Thai? Is, it, is that the language? It's Thai. Mm-hmm. Thai. It's just a really, really you know nuts and bolts good movie it's filmed on a sound stage and then in this like giant water tank everyone does their own stunts um lots of under cool underwater shots as well as just the story so if it's a story that you're not as familiar with or just something that you did know about at the time and you want to know a little bit more about um it's just a really good movie and also really historically accurate as far as what actually happened and it, you know it's, it was a big historical event it's got good performances, and it's a it's a really really good way to spend a couple hours if you have a night. Hmm. Yeah, I will definitely. I've, I've added it to my movie list. It was just a stunning. I remember it unfolding as it was happening. It was just mm-hmm. a stunning story, um, full with a lot of drama and strange egotistical people who remain nameless, trying to uh, steal all the glory for themselves, mm-hmm. and just all kinds of crazy stuff. It. Um, yeah, I remember them getting out and were like, what a historical moment it was. So I'm, I'm definitely excited to see that. I have been uh, just continuing to partake of the Clone Wars. Has basically been the only TV I, uh, I, I consumed this week. And it was, it was TV worth consuming. I, uh, I got to the Darth Maul. I, I don't know how far. How far are you? I finished, finished Clone it? Wars. Oh, yeah, you finished I did. Clone Wars. Yeah. Okay, so I'm at the, at, right at the turn of the Darth Maul arc in season five when... Uh, when like Darth Maul and Savage are like running around the galaxy trying to uh, kill Obi Wan, basically, and I just had the duel with them on the pirate planet, and I was just sitting there watching them fight, and I was like, "Why is this cooler than like everything Disney has done?" 
That's a fair question. <laughs> it's like a five minute animated duel. And I was like, this is just, I don't know. It was just delightful. I had a wonderful moment just watching Obi-Wan fight both of these massive aliens at once. It was, it was delightful. So that was yeah. my entertainment moment of the week. I love that for you. Those, those are those are easy because you can just kind of fit an episode in at kind mm-hmm. of like any window of time just because they're they're not too long. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I, just have, I have 20 minutes I can fit in an episode. It's, just, it's easy. Absolutely. It was delightful. John, there's not a whole lot. You mentioned that sports are back, which is true, but there's not a whole lot of interesting stories right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like last week and the week before were so heavy with all the stories. <laughs> um, so there's one thing from last week that I wanted to follow up on and then we'll hit on. Uh, the big story. Uh, we talked last week that about the the lawsuit that the live golfers filed against the PGA Tour for antitrust because three of the live players who, based on points, would have qualified for the FedEx Cup playoff, which is going on right now, were suspended and not allowed to play. And they sued, claiming that that was a harm and that they should be allowed to play. Uh, there was a ruling in that case that came out was it what, like Wednesday or Tuesday, Tuesday. right Tuesday. before the uh, right before the tournament was going to start, and the judge sided with the PGA Tour, saying that there was no irreparable harm against the Live Golf players and that they were not allowed to play this tournament and this playoff. There's a few things in this that I think are interesting. One is when you're in court, you have to tell the truth, which is very different than what you have to tell the media. And so we actually learned a lot of things about Liv that are interesting, that they were denying in public to the media, but that in court they actually had to admit. And one of the biggest ones is the structure of their contract. Because the there were rumors going around that the contracts were being structured in a way that your earnings were being... Uh, where you were earning against your base salary. So basically what that means is if someone, if their live salary is $50 million, then they don't actually earn their weekly winnings, like what they're winning in a tournament until they get to that 50 million threshold. So like if if I win a tournament and I get $4 million, I don't actually get that 4 million, that's just 4 million of my 50. And then only when oh. I get to my base salary do I get tournament winnings on top of it. Mm-hmm. And they were denying that this was happening, but in court, the attorneys had to admit that in some cases, this is how they were structuring contracts, so that your tournament earnings were against your salary, mm-hmm. um, which makes live obviously still more lucrative than the PGA Tour, but less lucrative than they were claiming to be. Yeah, which I think is a significant a significant point it was also interesting to me the judge kind of noted that in part of the reason for i guess throwing out their case was that uh it was sort of a desperate play time-wise that they basically brought the suit right before the playoffs were about to start to kind of like basically artificially create some kind of an emergency and try to push themselves through um and the judge was having absolutely none of that which i thought was a i thought was an interesting response yeah my last thing is that that was interesting because you know when it was filed it was only like what seven days before the Mm -hmm. fedex playoff was going to start and then the ruling happened two days before so very very last minute especially if they would have had time to you know if this had been filed a month in advance they would have had more time to do all the discovery and things right because this happened it was in june i'm trying to remember yeah yeah it was in june so they They've had plenty of time to work on this, and uh, according to the New York Times, the lawyers tried to claim that, you know, things weren't clear, basically, that they would be banned from the playoffs until recently, and I'm like, the the PGA Tour banned you right, two months ago. Like, right. Literally, before, you made it clear that you were going to be banned before you ever even started this, right? So, I think I think that's just an interesting thing with noting. The last thing that I found in this ruling that was kind of ironic was that it, you know, in the public posturing, both the mm-hmm. PGA Tour and the Live have been trying to kind of posture themselves as an equal, you know, the Live especially has been trying to promote themselves as, as an equal or, you know, even better product than the PGA Tour. But when it came time to argue their case in court, the Live attorneys 
were doing everything they could to make the PGA Tour feel like the Super Bowl. Like, mm-hmm. they, they actually said that the FedEx Cup playoff is like the Super Bowl or like the World Series. And the reason why they were doing that was to say that they were that these players were being irreparably harmed by not being allowed to compete. But in so doing, they had to actually, the live attorneys had to argue that the PGA Tour is a much more prestigious and much more important event than the live <laughs> event is, which is kind of the opposite of what they've been trying to say else, elsewhere. So is it, we seem to be running with... Uh again a completely different narrative from what they're they're telling to the media yeah and then they so they basically had to say you know oh yeah the fedex cup the pga tour championship is is the world series of the super bowl you know we're more like the xfl or the minor league to, 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 <laughs> to, to argue on behalf of these players who wanted to play and then the last thing john that i didn't realize is they were also arguing not that just that there was a lot of money at stake in the fedex cup playoff but also that there was some non-monetary harm oh, and what they mentioned was that there are automatic qualifying spots to the majors mm-hmm. determined based on the FedEx Cup playoffs, which is true. Um, but that's also not the PGA Tour's fault. It's the majors who give those out. Mm-hmm. The majors are not giving automatic spots to live as of yet, but I believe that they could if they wanted to go that route. None of the, I guess the PGA Championship is governed by the PGA Tour, but none of the other, none of the other majors are governed by the PGA Tour. And mm-hmm. if they wanted to give automatic spots to live, they could. But that's not, you know, when you're suing the PGA Tour, it's not the PGA Tour's fault or decision that their players are rewarded for their success at the majors. Like, so again, that was kind of just the wrong party to bring that complaint against. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see if the majors do end up banning live players or not. Because obviously, so far, they've been allowed to uh, compete, but there's been rumblings for sure that that may not continue depending on how all these situations go and i think i don't know i think i, I think i would like to see that ban go through but i'm mm-hmm. i'm curious to see i guess especially since the european tour seems to also not be particularly a fan of the, of live if they end up joining forces with the pga or not um, i think that'll be I think that's going to be one of the biggest next questions to be resolved because I think not being able to persi- not being able to participate in the majors I feel would probably cause some people to think twice about their decision making so far. Yeah, I think that's true. The, you mentioned the European Tour. Also, so far the like the World Golf Rankings is not acknowledging Live yet, mm-hmm. which I think there's going to be another suit between Live and the World Golf Rankings about them about live tournaments qualifying for for world golf ranking points because those are a big deal for for like the Ryder cup for majors the world golf rankings are are a big deal i think the ultimate irony though is that they're arguing ultimately the crux of the argument was these players these three players are being denied the the big purses that Mm -hmm. the that the fedex cup playoff offers despite the fact that they were signing you know signing bonuses to join live that were in almost every case higher than the earning potential in the FedEx Cup playoff. Mm-hmm. So, again, we talked about last week how this is just the ultimate trying to have it both ways. And like we said last week, actions do, in fact, have consequences and decisions. You know, you make one decision, that means you can't make another. And that is that is called life. That is called life. And uh, hopefully these players learn uh, at some point that you can't uh, try to leave the league you're playing in for money and then try to stay in the league at the same time. Can you imagine if like the Rams were like, we're going to join the XFL, but we, you know, we already won our division. Like it's like, it's like mid November, the Rams win the division and then decide, you know, we're actually going to go play in the XFL and then are like, Hey, NFL, can we please play in your playoffs though? So we can compete for the Super Bowl. <laughs> what's the, what's the TikTok? You must learn that there are consequences to your actions. <laughs> it's just such a silly thing to do. We quit. <laughs> and also, us. please let us compete. It's just so silly. Yeah, it, it it's a bizarre, it is a bizarre situation that just continues to be ridiculous. My hope is obviously that this league implodes at some point, but we're obviously not there yet. Not there yet, John. I want to talk about the big story this week, and that is Serena Williams. It is um, a big story. Yeah, she announced that in an article that she wrote for Vogue magazine and Vogue Online. She announced that. In three, about three weeks from now, 
which is going to be the U.S. Open. That's going to be the end for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the 2022 U.S. Open will be her final tennis tournament of her career, and she's going to retire. So it kind of gives us a chance to reflect on her career and her legacy before it completely comes to an end. And I'm sure there'll be a lot more time to think about that after the U.S. Open. Um, first, I guess, what did you think about the timing of this announcement, um, doing it before the U.S. Open? Is that something that you expected, or um, did it surprise you that the announcement came now? I think, I mean, given given the way her career has been going, right, I've been kind of, like, I guess following, you could say, the tennis world for the last, like, couple years or so. Um, and in that time, I mean, she's played some, but she hasn't really seen much success she's been in and out through injury and stuff um and she was out for this entire last year right until Wimbledon basically like she hadn't played in almost an entire calendar year um so she's been struggling with injuries she's I think 42 now 41 somewhere I think she's 41 yeah I think she's 41 and you know, I think, I don't know, I've definitely been getting to feel like retirement was around the corner for her, you know? You know, it's a huge announcement, but when I when I saw it come out, it made, it made sense to me. You know, she lost in the first round at Wimbledon. You know, she's not the tennis player that she once was. And, you know, as she wrote in her essay, she's got a lot of other things on her mind now. I think she's, she's ready to make that, that next step. Um, and you know, like some people might might say they're retiring like after the tournament happens, but it's clear like she's ready to kind of be done, you know, and just kind of put that line in the sand and say like, I'm gonna give this a shot, um, but I don't know where this is going. And, you know, just she's left such a legacy that I think it'll be cool to have kind of like, you know, basically a place to mark where it all started uh, going full circle. Yeah, I I, th- I think the reason why it's good is because it makes this U.S. Open really really cool, and there you know there's been a debate about you know players or coaches who kind of announce and then do this big tour. We talked about you know Kobe Bryant did it in 2016. Uh, more recently, Mike Shashevsky did it this mm-hmm. past basketball season, and some people can be really critical of that decision, saying that it's you know very selfish and kind of puts the attention on you, but ultimately having that context kind of makes moments more important. Yeah. Like like the Kobe Bryant 60-point game, his final game, was, like, a much bigger deal because everyone knew it was the end. And, like, every celebrity you could possibly name was there. Like, the, the, the Coach K decision, people were criticizing, oh, he's taking the attention on himself, off of his players, classic Coach K, whatever. Like, the Final Four was better because that story was part of the Final Four. Like, that game was already, like, the most important thing ever. And then it became even more so because it wasn't just Duke-Carolina in the Final Four. It was, you know, the end of the road for Coach K. Um, and so it, I think that that can create a really, really big moment here for Serena, especially if she goes on a bit of a run here at the U.S. Open. The only thing that surprised me about it is when you actually look at the Grand Slam title list. And right now, Serena is one away from Margaret Court, who had 24, and Serena has 23 right now. Which, you know, let's say that she plays the US Open and does fine, and doesn't win, and then retires. That's fine. She had about three years to get this final one. She just couldn't do it. The problem, John, is if she wins, which, however improbable you think that may be, you're going to tell Serena that she's now tied and the Australian Open is only four months away? Like, I don't, I don't know how you can retire in September tied and then look at January, which is when the Australian Open is, and not think, hmm, I just beat all these people <laughs> on... I beat all these people on the same surface and you're telling me that four months later I just have to do it one more time? I, I, I think if she wins the US Open, she will unretire. I think that's probably fair. I think it, having read her essay, I, I get the feeling like she has no expectations of winning. I don't think so. I don't think she thinks she will, but, but, yeah. but it's not, it's not the most impossible thing. Like this is not Tiger no, Woods 2019 not. Masters. Like she's still a very, very good player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, 
given the people she's faced recently and kind of struggled against, I, my guess is her mind is kind of in a place of like, I'm just here to kind of play as well as I can and then move on. If she did win, I think you're 100% right. Like if somehow something like is just like unearthed from within her and she is awoken and just carries all before her, which would be unbelievable and would be one of the coolest tennis tournaments like ever. Yeah. If not the coolest tennis tournament ever. Yeah, I think there's no way that she wouldn't because she's talked about how much she wants. She does want that record, but I think she's just established that she's kind of okay with not having it, I guess, and moving on. But you know, if she had a shot at it, she's such a competitor. I'm sure she would. Right. I'm sure she would go for it. Yeah, I'm not picking Serena to win the 2022 U.S. Open. No. But I was listening to the tennis podcast this morning, and they mentioned a really this is an interesting point, which is that. Serena Williams winning the 2022 U.S. Open is more likely statistically than than Emirata Kanu winning the 2021 U.S. Open. Like, that was really weird. That was like, weird. That I was a, about that. And so, like, like I mean, we're still talking about Serena Williams. Her serve is still very powerful. Her movement is not good, but her her you know shots are still very very powerful and very very accurate. I'm not picking her to win. I would you know I think. Something like quarterfinals would be great for her, mm-hmm. but would I be like, again, would I be 2019 Tiger Woods Masters stunned if she won the U.S. Open? I don't think so. Mm. I don't. I don't think I would be that surprised. I think that it's it's a long shot, but it's not totally unrealistic to say that it could happen. And if it does, I I think she would have to play the Australian Open. No, I 100% agree. I've been thinking about her legacy a decent amount over this last week, I guess, just kind of, you know, regardless of where she ends up going, whether complete retirement or whether she plays another tournament. I don't know. I've just been, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about the legacy she's left for tennis and just the sports world at large. Cause you know, like there was a period where I didn't really know anything about tennis, like whatsoever. And in that kind of like era, the only two tennis players I knew were Serena and Venus Williams. Like the Williams sisters were the only tennis players whose like names were in my mind in the popular consciousness as like the face of tennis, you know? And I think that's just like, you know, across society, that's a common thing. And I think the two of them have really like, especially Serena, but both of them together have really kind of created a new image for tennis in the modern world, you know, that I think is something really remarkable about Serena's legacy that is definitely like, it's gonna be one of the most long lasting things about her career. Um, You know, like watching King Richard, which we talked about, I think, did it come out last year? Yeah, last year, it was last year, yeah. You know, learning about their story and the dedication of their dad to making them into superstars and then them, you know, like walking through this whole process to become those people, you know, fighting through all the pressures of being young athletes and then rising from that to basically, you know, arguably being the greatest tennis player ever, you know, is, is it's one of the most incredible, like individual athlete stories, I think that has ever happened. Yeah, it is remarkable. I think, I think the movie, having come out at the time it did help put a lot of that into context as mm-hmm. well. You know, and I think in many ways, Venus, for for people like my age and there who came up as kids when they were winning, Serena is, you know, almost like in a league of her own above Venus in my, mm-hmm. in my mind. Yeah. And that's because she's more successful. She's a better player. Um, but you know, for the movie to focus on that, it, you know, it, it really was both of them and like Venus, like if there wasn't Serena, take Serena completely out. Like Venus has like a top five women's career of all time as well. Like mm-hmm. she's not like just the sister, like she's also an amazing tennis player. And I think she sometimes gets overshadowed by Serena. Um, and I think the movie helped put that into context a little bit more for me. I think. One of the things I think about when we talk about early on Venus and Serena and kind of I think that their rise came at the perfect time because the 2000s, 2010s and then now, this is really the first 
about two decades in tennis where the men's side was not dominated by Americans. Mm -hmm. From Arthur Ashe to Jimmy Connors to John McEnroe to Pete Sampras for for decades from the through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the men's tennis, the centerpiece of men's tennis was America. And with the, you know, the retirement of Andy Roddick and even late in his career he wasn't that great. It really moved to Europe by 2005, 2006 on the men's side. And that you know then we get Roger, Rafa, Novak, Andy Murray. That's the centerpiece of the men's tournament world. And so for these two African American women to kind of like fill in that gap of American tennis, it it promoted them and it also promoted the women's game um, in a way that I think was really unique. Because if if there were like if especially for like the American media and for American fans, if if they were competing in the same era as like a McEnroe or a Connors or or Mm -hmm. another great American or if Rafa was an American. I think that just based on, you know, the disparity still, the, the, the inequality between the way the men's and women's games are viewed, I think that they would have kind of been overshadowed. But they kind of filled a void in the American tennis fan landscape that just shot up their popularity. And I think their, their legacy will kind of be having carried American tennis mm-hmm. for like 20 years. I think it's done so much to raise the image of the women's game too which as so many people have talked about so many commentators have talked about um serving as an inspiration for you know young black athletes especially young black girls you know getting into the sports world um feeling like they have a place and role models that they can look up to you know within a sport like tennis that you know when they started you know as king richard depicts was so entirely white dominated you know saying like as, as their dad said constantly, you know, like that they have just as much of a right to be on those courts as the kids whose parents, you know, all those like rich California kids who, you know, like bought their way onto the courts, you know. I think that like that like juniors tournament where they come in and just like destroy all those entitled kids, I think is one of like the most powerful <laughs> moments of that movie. Yeah. Um, and it's just that's kind of like an image of I think what they did to the tennis world, you know, and kind of brought this intense, energetic, workmanlike attitude to the tennis world. I think that really, in terms of like the pop culture image of tennis, I think has really changed, at least in America, the image of tennis forever, you know? Yeah, I, I, I you, you have a note here about the timing of the movie is kind of interesting with the timing of their career. Mm-hmm. As kind of as their career comes to an end, they decided they want to executive produce and be part of this movie, for which Will Smith wins the Oscar. It's a it's a huge success as far as the film goes. Um, it was you know readily streamed on HBO Max, so I think a lot of people saw it. It as as their careers come to the end. I, I know Venus hasn't retired yet, but mm-hmm. uh, Serena has now moving toward that. I think having this history, especially for younger people like me who didn't live when they were originally coming up. Um, or at least we're so young that I wasn't paying attention to tennis. It does provide just that extra layer of context that I think is really important. And so I would just, again, if you can watch that movie before the U.S. Open and then enjoy the U.S. Open, I think that'd be mm-hmm. a really, really great thing to do if you haven't seen King Richard yet. Yeah. Yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, she Serena won her first Grand Slam at the U.S. Open in 1999, which was the year I was born. So, mm-hmm. like, my, I've never known a world without Serena Williams, like being dominant at tennis which is crazy and like just the amount of longevity that that means that she's had right is is you know a full 23 year career of just being at the top of her game is is a tremendous accomplishment and i don't know i'm curious like do you think if there's like a tennis goat argument like where would you put would you put serena at the top like where would you rank her in terms of her accomplishments in terms of her cultural impact, like when you think about your pantheon of tennis players, both men's and women's game. I think Serena Williams has the greatest career of any tennis player. Mm-hmm. And I feel pretty good about that because, you know, Margaret Court has one more major. But if you also look at like total number of tournaments won, total number of weeks as the world number one, like, and 
just like having like what I saw with my eyes was a woman who for about seven years just obliterated the competition. Mm-hmm. Like the women's tennis was almost uncompetitive how good she was. I think that what that that's that's what makes her so dominant, but I think that's also gonna hold her back in terms of her legacy because she never really had a true rival. Mm-hmm. Her biggest rival was her sister, and by the prime of Serena's career, she was pretty dominant over it Venus. Was not even close. <laughs> no. And and so like when you look at like who's gonna come out on top of the Roger Rafa Novak rivalry, I think that person is gonna be a little bit more to use I guess the in, immortal or have a little bit bigger uh, mystique about them, a little bit bigger legacy, just because the competition was so high and the rivalry was so fierce and you know, to you know, they were always meeting the same people at all these big finals and Murray was there and there were and so like someone's gonna come out of that on top and that person is gonna have such big rivalries and such big moments and so i think serena's dominance is almost something that some people will hold against her because she never had a true rival and there were years where it never even looked like she was being challenged by her competition but i, I do think she has the best the greatest career i you know if another if, if novak wins 27 grand slams or something crazy or if if rafa nadal wins another five french opens I will reconsider that opinion. <laughs> but right now, based on the numbers and based on the eye test, Serena has the greatest career, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, I'd be interested to see her alongside someone like, and she's obviously not even close to as dominant, but like obviously Sviatek just had that massive run where she just like didn't lose a game for like, yeah. like 65 games or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, it'd be interesting to see her career rise alongside someone like that who could be potentially you know like a a dominant rival force you know to kind of like be pitted against so i was like like you said like that creates storylines the triumvirate of that's kind of arisen of nadal fed and djokovic has been like tennis that i like that competition has got was kind of what got me to even like start being interested in tennis at all was right like some of those matches you know, Djokovic trying to win four in a year, like those, the the race between them for majors kind of became something that I was like, oh, this is this is actually kind of interesting. Like, am I, I'm I'm getting into like the drama of this, you know, um, which is obviously a different appeal than seeing, you know, like the Patriots effect, like the the Tom Brady, not not to compare Serena to the Patriots, just to be <laughs> clear, you know, but like the similar feeling of like they simply cannot lose, you know, it's like a different. It's a different, like, feeling of attraction to the sport. Yeah, like, how many Grand Slam finals have been, like, Rafa and Novak, for example? Mm-hmm. And, like, Serena would win as many majors, as obviously as many as any of them, but she would just, she had, there was no, like, big, like, trilogy. Like, the, the men's tennis game feels like, like the heavyweight boxing world right now. Like, there's just these, like, trilogies and grudge match. Like, it's, it's the three heavyweights. And it was kind of just Serena kind of, beating on whatever unlucky person just made it out of the other side and so there yeah i guess there just weren't as many stories there Mm -hmm. john i do want to mention before we go out like serena is not entirely without controversy Mm -mm. um early on in their career they had a big um both serena and venus had um a really you know significant issue with the indian wells tournament where they ended up boycotting for a long time uh due to racist abuse that they received they did receive a lot of racist abuse um, early in their career. I don't think that's ever completely gone away, but they, you know, they were kind of modern-day civil rights activists in that world, and they they were the in, they were those who were integrating a white sport, and they definitely took punishment for that, which they handled as well as you could expect girls of their age to do. Later on in her career, though, Serena had a lot of you know brush-ups with officials. That kind of came to its biggest moment in the U.S. Open final against Naomi Osaka. Um, that's kind of is the one big black mark on her career. Um, the thing that she, I think, is probably the most sorry for, the thing that she apologized mm-hmm. for in the moment. 
Um, some people I know saw that behavior and, and never quite saw Serena the same after that, her altercations with the officials that completely overshadowed Naomi Osaka's accomplishment of winning her first career Grand Slam title. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that happening and remember how big of kind of like a backlash there was about that. I guess kind of the perception I got as, as an outsider was that like she was kind of being basically a poor loser about being beaten by Osaka was like 18 or something at the time, right? Like she was really young. Yeah, very young. You know, having like a veteran at the top of her game being beaten, you know, by a team like Williams was at one point, you know, at at that stage and then kind of like stealing the limelight with bad behavior. You know, it's obviously not a great look and it's not, you know, I would never, in the heat of the moment, I would never mark that against an athlete as like being career defining you know obviously tennis is tennis has this very very particular like culture that obviously like judges things like that very poorly and Djokovic obviously is not like foreign to incidents like that of any kind so I so I you know I try to and people talk about this I try to be fair and not like you know single out individual people when when things like that do happen on a regular basis and in the sports we watch most of the time incidents like that happen you know all the time people yell in officials faces and get yellow cards and red cards and people get mad at each other and that's kind of how it is but with tennis obviously there's with the individual culture of tennis there's a little bit more of an expectation that, that you don't behave in that manner you know so i do i understand that and i think it she understands and everyone understands that it was not a good way to behave but I don't you know I don't I don't think it, it's it's like a, a permanent blight on her career I guess I think it's interesting what you mentioned kind of like the old school thought around tennis in particular mm-hmm. golf is kind of similar in Serena's article she kind of reflects on what she wants her legacy to be and she said that she wants her legacy she said I'd like to think that thanks to me women athletes can be themselves they can play with aggression and pump their fists they can wear what they want and say what they want and kick butt and be proud of it all. And so I think she was kind of conscious of the ways that uh, her boisterousness, her aggression, her style was very countercultural to the way that tennis was happening at the time that they came up in it. And I think that she was very intentionally something different, something unique in terms of the outfit she wore, in terms of the style of her play, the boisterousness of her celebrations, and yes, even her temper toward the officials. I think that it's something that certainly shook up the old school tennis world, but it also empowered women uh, to be themselves. And I think that you see a generation of female athletes who are now molded in her likeness. Yeah, I think it's also worth noting that very much I think she kind of paved the way and took the brunt of a lot of criticism that was coming specifically against you know a woman acting in that way but I think it's also worth noting that the kind of a similar progression is happening in the men's game right now where a lot of younger men's players are kind of taking heat from like the tennis establishment in the media for behaving in ways that are kind of untennis like if you will Thinking of players like Daniel Medvedev, or obviously Kyrgios has his own problems that are very kind of in another bracket of their own, but but he still has been taking flag for you know acting in a quote unquote ungentlemanly manner at times on the court, and I think that there have been there seem to have been more and more kind of examples of that in the men's game as well. Uh, I think we are going to see just kind of as a brief aside. I think we're going to see more and more probably of a shift away from some of those like tennis establishment like conformist viewpoints as time goes on because i think i don't know our generation doesn't seem to really put as much stake or value in those kind of like cultural norms i guess yeah player empowerment is a universal thing now Mm -hmm. we talk about it in the nba but it's resonating all over the world there's been you know huge controversies in baseball about the, the, the jewelry players are wearing and the, 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 the showboating home runs. That's just something that's happening. It's just a generational thing, and it's not something that's unique to any sport. It's happening all over the place. John, I want to hit on 
I guess, three things in the 10 minutes we have left. The first is just a little quick insight, which is to say that it seems like this before Wimbledon, Serena did think that she was already retired, like she was ready to give it up. Mm-hmm. And she talks about talking to Tiger, Tiger Woods. And he kind of said, like, what if you just committed for two weeks and saw what happened? And she was like, yeah, I think I can do that. And so she does that in Wimbledon and she's going to do it in the U.S. Open. And I, I think there are some interesting similarities in the careers of these two players in terms of the in, the injuries and the, this like late stage renaissance. Um, so it, it's an interesting insight to think that Tiger just saying like, what if you just gave it two weeks? You don't have to commit to anything. Just go out there and see what happens. And she was like, yeah, that, that worked for Tiger, obviously. And maybe it'll work for her one more time. Uh, John, I you had I want you to kind of explain. She gave an interesting reason about her retirement, uh, and it was family. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you had any thoughts on, or wanted to explain, and had any thoughts on on that aspect of her decision. Yeah, yeah, that's actually something. Honestly, one of the biggest things that I wanted to talk about, honestly, because she she basically says that one of her primary reasons for finally deciding to just straight up retire is that she and her husband want to have another kid. Um, and she said that she doesn't really want to go through that again while playing tennis. That it's such just such a drain um, on you know being able to compete and also being a parent simultaneously. And she you know she says something along the lines of you know that if she was a male athlete, you know things would be different. You know she says, "quote I never wanted to have to choose between tennis and a family. I don't think it's fair." If I were a guy, I wouldn't be writing this because I'd be out there playing and winning while my wife is doing the physical labor of expanding our family. Maybe I'd be more of a Tom Brady if I had that opportunity. And, you know, she kind of reflects on on that and what it means for her to be a woman who wants to be a mother and also has had this intense competitive drive for so long. But then she kind of, as the essay develops, she kind of unfolds a really interesting perspective on her tennis career. And she, she talks about mothering her daughter Olympia and just like the constant joy that it is for her to just be in that role and then she kind of flips the script a little bit and she talks about the challenges of the tennis life that she's lived you know when you think about the story of King Richard the just constant drive that her father instilled in her and just kind of beat into her over years and years and years the competition is absolutely everything um you know when she looks back at her tennis career she said you know it was constant sacrifice all the time to be at that just at the top of her game battling over and over and over to stay there and she said you know motherhood to her doesn't feel that way it's just a constant you know gift that's giving back to her constantly um and so she said you know, she said it feels like, you know, tennis is something she's willing to give up to continue moving along that path and do all the other things business-wise that she wants to do as well. But I thought that it was it was just a fascinating reflection on, you know, where she wants to go from here, but also kind of on, it made me kind of think about, I guess, wondering how, you know, both she's learned from her dad and also knowing what we know about the way her dad drove both her and Venus, like, you know, it's, it seems like she wants to frame, you know, I, we don't know exactly, but that she wants to frame parenting her kids in a little bit of a different way than her dad did where, you know, she'll support her kids. She writes, you know, whatever they do to be the best and what they can be, but it'll be, she says it'll be their choice, you know, what they want to do. She and didn't like, have a choice. Richard Williams never gave his kids a choice ever, yeah. you know, and like, I. I think that is one of the most interesting things of that essay is like her career is here because Richard Williams didn't give them a choice. And I think she, obviously since they made the movie, you know, they, they love their dad for that, but it also is a lifestyle that I'm sure she understands is one that not everyone should have. And she wouldn't, not to put too many words into her mouth, but she wouldn't want to force that on her child in the way that her dad did. So I thought, you know, like King Richard accomplished his goal and then you're left, you know, with like what the next generation of Williams kids has. And it's like, you know, maybe it won't be a tennis dynasty after this, or maybe it will. 
Yeah, I think King Richard is simultaneously loving and respectful and also fair and critical, mm-hmm. which is interesting for family members to be involved in the production of it. I, th- I was actually surprised by how fair it was and how critical mm-hmm. it was. Um, that, that shows that they, Venus and Serena, understand their story. They view their father um, in a loving but unbiased and fair manner, and that, I think, made the story better. And I think that's evident in the way that she wants to make choices a little bit differently. I think the dichotomy, um, the comparison she made to Tom Brady is super interesting in terms of the fact that throughout his entire career, Tom Brady was able to have the family he wanted to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and for women, you know, the prime of your athletic career is is at the same time as the prime of your years to have children and raise a family. And that's, that's something that I don't think we talk about enough or a lot. Um, the sacrifices that female athletes who want to have families are making because either they're giving up, you know, nine, nine months of their careers at a time and then having young children or they're postponing children to, you know, post their prime, which is what I guess Serena chose to do. Mm -hmm. Um, she did win an Australian open while two months pregnant, which is amazing. Uh, my last thought, John is just, where do you think Serena goes from here? Um, is she kind of, I don't, I'm I'm really curious on if she's going to be someone that we, like, see at tennis matches. I thought that it was really noteworthy that she was really the the one notable absence from the center court presentation at Wimbledon this year. There was a big presentation that Roger Federer went to that, you know, kind of all of the legends were at. And Serena had played in Wimbledon, and she was in London. And it, it reporting suggests that she missed that ceremony to attend a Rolling Stones concert. Um, Venus was there. Everyone else was there. And she chose not to participate. I know that she has a company called Serena Ventures, and they uh, fund a lot of businesses. They're a venture capitalist firm. They, they, the, the companies that they've funded are worth about a billion dollars. Um, it's a very successful firm. They focus a lot on women and people of color and they're uh, you know uh, supporting those businesses and so i wonder if she just kind of transitions to capital venture venture capitalist executive or if she's still going to be a visible face in the tennis world i don't i don't really feel like she is i, don't, I wouldn't expect her to be i guess based on some of her decision making in in the recent mm-hmm. past yeah i guess i don't i've always viewed her as the face of tennis but i don't know if she's like the spokesperson for tennis, you know, mm-hmm. which is what those like legacy players end up being, you know, when they like really Billie Jean King, like Billie Jean King. You're like, I don't think Serena has ever been that player. You know, Serena has, see, has always seemed to me to be a player who has that place in the tennis world because of of playing, you know, not because she's saying things like she has always made statements. But, you know, like I think of LeBron as the face will be a legacy voice in the NBA, you know, always, I think, in a way that is different than Serena, I think, because LeBron has always kind of seemed to want to be saying things constantly. I don't know if that makes sense, if that checks out to you, if you feel like that's fair. But like, I don't know, I just, I view their legacies differently. I think it is, I think, no, I think it is right. I think she's someone who was generally pretty candid in interviews she was like she wasn't hostile toward the media but she wasn't going out of her way to be a spokeswoman not even in the way that Naomi Osaka did mm-hmm. in the in the aftermath of George Floyd uh, I don't I, I can't think of anything that Serena did that was quite like that where she was intentionally putting the spotlight on herself in that kind of way yeah I, I don't think she's going to be a Billie Jean King I don't think she's going to be a LeBron James I think I think that she's going to have a fairly private life um, kind of like, I guess, kind of like Roger Federer, mm-hmm. who has, you know, he hasn't officially retired, but we haven't seen him much. He yeah. showed up for that Wimbledon thing, and that's about it. Yeah, I mean, Andy Murray, you know, is someone who is, like, super prominent in UK culture and seems to, like, appear at things constantly, even when he's not playing, you know, like, that's He's someone... basically a member of the royal family. Right. Like, I imagine someone like him, you know, like, kind of constantly being around once he retires, right? As just, like, you know, British tennis guy, just appearing every so often. You know, I think there is, you have different, every athlete has a different style once they reach that, like, 
peak level, you know, has a different style of both kind of approaching culture as a whole and approaching the media and approaching how much they're involved in the game once they're gone. Like, you know, Michael Jordan, obviously, he part owns the Hornets, right? Or does he completely own the Hornets? He owns the Hornets. Yeah. He owns the Hornets, yeah. You know, it's like you have that one style where you're like now involved in the game in a completely different way or you can go be a coach. Um, and some players just say, you know, I'm leaving the game behind me. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Serena come back. But she also talked about not retiring from tennis, but evolving beyond tennis in her essay. Mm-hmm. And that almost to me feels a little bit more final than just saying I'm not playing tennis anymore. Yeah, you know, it did feel it. It I think you're right in that it feels a little bit more significant than just I'm not going to play anymore. You know, th- those those things mean different things, and I I do get the feeling after someone who's you know was basically born holding a racket as she writes and as the movie depicts you know it it's like part of her but i'm sure there's a part of her that's ready to like do other things yeah she's she's part of the ownership group of uh, that natalie portman put together for the los angeles women's soccer team mm-hmm. in the nwsl like i would it surprise me if we saw her more frequently at those games than at the u.s open that wouldn't surprise me at all mm-hmm. i could understand if, if she said i have complete tennis burnout I would say that's fair enough. You, from the <laughs> age you were time. two, from two to forty-one, all you did was tennis. I think a break would be would be totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a legacy worth reflecting on, Absolutely. and I'm glad that we took the time to do it. Do you have any other any other thoughts this week, John? Before we get out of here, no. I think just you know, I didn't say it in the pop culture roundup, but as we've said, you if you haven't seen King Richard by this point, you really do need to see it. I, it was one of my movies of the year last year. That's really good. It's a great movie. Um, yeah, I, I love it. I I think that um, I, I we haven't mentioned this, and I we don't have time now. But I do just want to mention that we are aware of the uh, the passings of both Vin Scully and Bill Russell. Mm-hmm. Some news was that the the NBA announced that Bill Russell's jersey number will be retired across the league, which is a first mm-hmm. for the NBA. That hasn't happened before. So the number six will no longer be an active jersey in the NBA for any team. Um, Vin Scully obviously had as big of an impact on baseball as as anyone ever has. Um, we we didn't dedicate a whole segment to those stories, but those also are lives worth reflecting on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very sad to hear of their passings. And then on top of that, on a personal note, the passing of David McCullough, whose biographies oh, right. are. Mm-hmm so instrumental to my life his adam's biography his um his truman biography it was a, it was a tough week in terms of passings mm-hmm. uh when those three especially all hit me pretty hard yeah so yeah all, all all legacies worth remembering i need to i still haven't actually read through a mccullough book so i need that needs to be rectified you must you yeah. must yeah, I was listening to a podcast, and Mitt Romney said that outside of the Bible, the McCullough Adams biography is the best book of all time. And I immediately wow. picked it up and read it. And I'm honestly, I wouldn't find him that hard on it. It's a mm-hmm. tremendous book. My grandpa bought me the Truman biography, and it's his favorite book as well. So he, yeah, some some really, really important piece of literature. That's book corner, I guess. I'll anyway, be find that shortly. Yeah, thank you all so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I hope you all enjoy watching King Richard this week. Maybe I'll watch it again. I just Honestly, I might feel I, the need. Yeah, I will too. We're yeah. gonna do it. Okay, that sounds great. Yep. Um, thank you all. Again. Yeah, thank you all so much for taking the time to listen. We, um, you can follow us on social media. You can interact with us um, there. You can comment anything that you want us to talk about in the future as we kind of get into the the busiest season of sports here in the fall. We're almost we're almost at that point, John, where there's all four sports at the same time. That that Which is that, a, a great time of year. There's there's always like that one day where it's like all four, sometime in October. <laughs> that's always a fun time. Um, you can also subscribe to the podcast so that you can get it in your feed every single week. Next week is our 100th episode. It is. So I wonder if we're gonna do something special or if it'll just be normal. We'll have to we'll have to talk about that behind the scenes and see if we're gonna do anything anything unique for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 100 episodes, John. We've 100 come a long episodes way. of crunching tackles, guys. We've come a, come a long, long, long way. So, John, do you have any other final thoughts for listeners before we let them go? I don't. Y'all okay. can be free. All right. Be well and be safe, and we will talk to you later. All right. Cheers, guys. Cheers.